with another very special stay-at-home self-quarantine episode of the Brando Cast. God damn it! Today's going to be a barn burner because we are talking to one of my favorite comedians, one of the great comic minds of the 20th and 21st <laughs> century. And that is my guest today, the fucking very talented Mr. Christian Finnegan. Oh my gosh, Brendan. Thank you. And I appreciate your including my 20th century work. And uh, I'm sure that you were following my uh, the sketch the sketch I did in high school drama club. I'm, I'm sure that uh, made the pantheon of, of my credits. Oh, time out. What was the sketch? Oh, oh I, I honestly, uh, now I'm trying to remember. I was in some play that was, uh, you know, a bunch of silly sketches. I was a drama club kid. There were a lot of plays. I, I was, uh, I played the Nazi in Cabaret. I, I played Danny Zuko in Greece. I played, th- I played the Cowardly Lion in an all white production of The Wiz. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that I'm, I'm sure that production had a lot of soul in it. Oh, did I meant? Did I need to mention that this was in Massachusetts? Probably not. That's probably probably was implied. <laughs> oh my God! Is that where you grew up? Are you from Massachusetts? I am. I am from the suburbs of Boston, Mass. But uh, mm-hmm. like one out of every four people in the comedy world. Which <laughs> yeah, is it is strange. fucking incredible when you think about you know all of the people from Boston. Yeah, and even some of the people that like went to boston to like learn their chops a little bit right who what? are sort of of the boston comedy world yeah i think mark Marin identifies himself as boston even though he grew up in albuquerque new mexico like me but sarah silverman bill burr dana gould you dane what Cook. is in the fucking oh. dane well i mean come on the godfather <laughs> you know, you have to you have to give props to the man upstairs, and the man upstairs is Dane Cook. What if you got to What if you got to the pearly gates, and it was just like prime two thousand five Dane Cook, just sitting there in like a Ed Hardy t shirt, just just giving you the the sufi. I I think I would have to turn around and try to go back to the other side. Uh, I he would be like, yeah, man, look at all the tweets that you made fun of me. Uh, there's like hundred. <laughs> Like, sorry, man. But uh, hey, um, what is in the water? What What about Massachusetts? That's a it's a good question, because I, I, I genuinely don't know. Because I mean, And also, in addition to that, there's so many writers, so many comedy writers from because I, I have nothing to do with that scene at all. I, I went to college in New York and uh, left Massachusetts as soon as I was able. And uh, so I don't have any kind of comedy roots in Massachusetts at all, but there, there clearly is something going on there. I, I think it's because everyone in Massachusetts is so cut off from their feelings and emotions. And uh, <laughs> there's just an icy quality to the way people. And so they stew internally, which I think then becomes the building blocks for comedy. I think Dana Gould, when I had him on this podcast, I think he basically pointed to alcoholism uh, and Irish Catholicism as two yeah. of the sort of like <laughs> yes, Catholicism <laughs> for sure, <laughs> which yeah. I have. Uh, so I have the Pittsburgh Catholicism, but um, I, my uncle was a priest. I used to, uh, we used to have like mass in my grandmother's living room. Oh my god, it's very exciting. <laughs> Was that mom's brother or was that dad's my dad? Brother? My dad was like, you know, last of seven Irish Catholic family, you know, picture of John F. Kennedy on the wall, like the whole, the whole deal, uh, you know, and as is with most Irish Catholic families from Boston growing up in sort of fifties and whatnot, uh, one priest, uh, one, uh, homosexual who only came out in his fifties, uh, one developmentally disabled person, because for whatever reason, every family in Boston, you have a cousin or an aunt and, uh, and, uh, a lot of, and four of the seven were alcoholics. So <laughs> <laughs> that's well, there's all, sometimes there's a cop in there. Yeah. Uh, no cops. That's right. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm not, I'm not, you know, come on. We were at some standards. <laughs> Oh my God. All right. Well, I'm so, dude, I'm so fucking excited to talk to you today uh, on the Brando cast. And I'm even more excited to talk to you because when I asked Mr. Christian Finnegan to come on and I gave him the, the sort of the preamble, we talk rock, we talk favorite artists, and he threw out a band that I literally just saw in concert a few nights ago from this recording. The Michael Chiklis about- band. 
The, the Mike, oh, you know what? The Michael Chitless <laughs> band at the Baked Potato on Ventura. Listen to me, San Fernando Valley. If you have not seen this powerful outfit, you are missing out. <laughs> you know, it's it's uh, when you can't get tickets to see Jeremy Renner, then uh, then it's Michael Chitless next. Okay, wait a minute. I'm gonna time out. Hold on, hold on. Time out. Time out. People who listen to this podcast know this about me. Uh, I spent a considerable amount of time doing karaoke at the farmer's market in Los Angeles. <laughs> I just Angeles. remember we had this interaction on Twitter a few months ago. <laughs> okay, right. So so I'll just share it with everybody else uh, because people were making fun of Jeremy Renner one day and many of us were piling on. And I think I just inserted the fact that that fucking guy can sing because every Saturday before he was famous, he was part of the same karaoke thing that I was. Um, and I got to give that fucking guy props because he brought it. I brought the rock and he brought the uh, sort of straight crooning, if you will. But that fucking oh, there's guy no question that he can sing that. I don't I don't think that was ever really the, the issue. I don't think anybody ever thought like this guy is incapable of singing. I think it was the the, the rest. It was the rest of it. <laughs> And, and the whole, the whole like, hey man, things have uh, things have gone pretty well for you. Why why rock the boat with this? You know, a, count your blessings uh, a little bit. Uh, Not everybody uh, needs to do everything. And and you know, the jury is still out. Is he a good hang or not? I don't know. He was always icy and competitive at the late nineties, early two thousands karaoke scene. And I remember competitive like competitive karaoke people, man, that is, that's a, that's a, the worst. that is a, yeah, that is a real issue. Like, but the thing, the thing about this, this, this particular karaoke scene is there were hundreds and hundreds of people there and each week and they would pack the patio at the farmer's market on third and Fairfax. And so there were a lot of desperate souls who truly believed that they were going to be discovered at farmer's market karaoke, um, <laughs> which, you know, is of the many delusions in the city of Los Angeles. That's one way at the top. And I, re but, I remember, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. I was just going to say, I remember like the fucking kid who's on the MTV show about trying to make it is a decent singer. Because that was like his claim to fame at that time. There what was like was a reality that? show. We well, we we all have little computers in our pockets. We could ah. like look it up. But it was literally an MTV reality show. It wasn't the real world, but it was kind of like real world following a bunch of kids who were trying to make it in the entertainment industry. And he was one of them. Oh my gosh! And look at that! <laughs> and, and and it all worked out. Cut to Hawkeye. That's a Hawkeye. I remember back when Ed Helms used to do stand up when he we he started in New York around the same time I did, and uh, he used to have a bit that cracked me up just about the guy who takes karaoke too seriously, and, and it was kind of like an act out where he he'd pretend to be an agent and then come up to somebody afterwards and be like, "Hey man, you got it," and like give them a card <laughs> that had a phone number on it, and then when they called the phone number, it would just be a message being like, "You are such a fucking loser." <laughs> Oh man, that's the fuck. What was best. your karaoke oh. song? What was your what were your go tos? My go tos were "Surrender" by Cheap Trick, uh, crowd pleaser, uh, Born, "Born to Run," Bruce Springsteen, greatest one night stand I ever had in my life was off of a performance of that song. Oh my gosh! Because um, a, a, a young woman was uh, enjoyed it. Um, what you else? Mean what I would do the, like me. <laughs> I would do Ramones. I would do Clash. Uh, you know, I was I had no qualms about getting up and screaming at people and being that uh -huh. guy. You know, yeah. kind of bringing the punk rock to the to the farmers market scene and just having a laugh after two pitchers of beer. And I don't know if you know my my buddy, my buddy John DiMaggio, who don't used to be a stand up back in the day. He's the voice of Bender uh, from Futurama. Okay, sure. uh, huge voiceover. Um, artist now he and I would go together and bring as many people as we could to this thing every single week but again Jeremy Renner was there um, I'm sure he he's was... a wonderful man I just uh, that, <laughs> that that video put out that he put out was just uh, fueled by hubris well I think he I think he's I think he's that guy I say that lovingly it might be a good quality who the fuck knows all right dude uh, as yeah. I mentioned cheers for fears that's yeah. what we're gonna talk about so listen everybody
Tears for Fears are an English pop rock band formed in Bath, England back in 1981 by Roland Oswald and Kurt Smith. Founded after the dissolution of their first band, the mod influence group Graduate, the duo had become intrigued by the instrumentation and studio techniques of synth-pop artists like Gary Newman, OMD, and Depeche Mode, and consequently moved their new project, Tears for Fears, in a more electronic direction. As such, the band were very much a part of the MTV-driven second British invasion of the U.S. in the 80s, very much associated with the new wave bands of that time. Tears for Fear. Dude, these are just some notes that I pulled together from Wikipedia. So tell me, what does Tears for Fears mean to you? You know, it's one of those things where you know how certain bands you grew up with and you don't even necessarily consider yourself a fan of them. They just happen to sort of fit into your coming of age, you know, that that they're sort of furniture in your life when you're 10, 11, 12 years old. And it was really only later, um, it was kind of after their heyday that I really kind of became more of an active fan and then kind of went back and then re-embraced Songs in the Big Chair and to a lesser degree, The Hurting, you know, with the first album, which, you know, a lot of people think, you know, that's maybe their favorite. It's not mine, but... um, but yeah, I, I kind of got into them at Seeds of Love, which is where a lot of people sort of jumped ship. And then I was kind of into the the uh, Roland Orsball solo version of Tears for Fears just for a couple albums after that. And then, it, but then it kind of went back. And and w- once I felt like I spoke the language of the band, like once I had an ear for what they were doing, it made it helped me kind of just understand like what a big part of my childhood they were and and head over heels was my wedding song and uh you know it was our wedding processional like that was what we entered to and uh and so yeah it's just one of those bands that i don't know uh kind of to me hits that perfect midpoint between pop you know and 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 uh easy to uh, digestible kind of you know three and a half minute pop songs whatever but also just striving for something a little bit more to, to where it still was in the within the realm of pop and rock and popular music, but had a little bit more for your brain to hook into. Okay, I, I won't bore you with the details of the Tears for Fears concert at the Forum in Los Angeles. Well, well, was it was it enjoyable? It was honestly one of the best shows I've been to in a long time. It sounded incredible, and I was going to say about Head Over Heels. Man, do people love that song. When they played it, the entire crowd sang along with that song. They sang along with everything. And you were talking about uh, Seeds of Love. Woman in Chains and Sowing the Seeds of Love were two of the highlights of the night for me. And they're not even necessarily in my favorite Tears for Fears songs. But they just, they're a damn good band. And I'll say this, the, the coolest thing that happened in the show, Forum was sold out. So that's super impressive. Uh, for them to pull off selling out the forum, you know, in 2022, Mm -hmm. which is not every band can do, but they played a lot of songs from their new record. Seven of the songs in the set were from the new album, The Tipping Point. And midway through the show, uh, Roland started thanking the crowd because he could see people singing along with the new songs. And he got choked up, like totally organic moment. And his face is on the big screen. And he was like, it, it means so much to us. And then he, he choked up and the place went crazy yeah. and allowed him to like really feel that moment. And it was like such a cool thing. Like you don't really, you never see like the guys in Kiss go like, oh my God, you guys, you guys like Love Gun. This, this is so cool. Thank <laughs> you so much. <laughs> Oh, this next song is called "Let's Put the X in Sex." Uh, yeah, yeah, you're not going to get that. But it, so, but it was really cool, and um, yeah, and I, it, I was just thinking at that show, like, God, what a great band, and they just make interesting music. They make interesting music, and and, and the tipping point is is just so much better than it has to be. You know what I mean? That like, like they could have come sort of phoned in a comeback album, and and they could have done the the sort of you know, remember us tour, which, you know, is kind of what they've been doing for the past 10 years. From what I understand is just sort of touring on their, on their legacy and their catalog. But the tipping point is like unbelievably solid. Like it, for, for it's, 
probably eight of the 10 songs are real keepers, which is to me a pretty damn good ratio. Um, you know, I, I, I really, and it's, and it kind of rests right in that pocket, uh, where it's not quite as synth poppy as their first couple albums, but it's not totally organic. Like they kind of got into more sort of live instrument, you know, organic instrumentation and stuff. It's sort of right in the middle there somewhere where it definitely has that early eighties tears for fears quality to it, but there's, you know, obviously, you know, live musicians playing and on at least most of the songs. I, I think it's it's really kind of a small miracle that album that, to see a band at that stage in their career kind of come out of nowhere after so many years and just drop this thing that's kind of a a bit of a gem. I think that album is. The Hurting is the debut studio album by Tears for Fears, and it was released on March seventh, nineteen eighty three. The album peaked at number one on the UK Albums Chart in its second week of release and reached platinum status in January of 1985. The Hurting is a loose concept album focusing on themes of child abuse, psychological trauma, and depression. Themes that were very much inspired by Roland Oswald's own childhood traumas and the primal theories of American psychotherapist Arthur Janoff. Despite its morbid subject matter, the album was a huge commercial success and contains Tears for Fears' first three hit singles, Mad World, Change, and Pale Shelter, all of which reached the top five in the UK and the top 40 internationally. The Hurting. I'll, let me admit this about The Hurting. Born in Pittsburgh, people who listen to the podcast know this. Born in Pittsburgh, divorce takes us to Albuquerque, New Mexico in 1980. I'm in seventh grade. Uh, Albuquerque is metal, metal, metal. It's Ozzy, it's Priest, it's Dio, it's Van Halen, it's Rush. All those bands came to Albuquerque. So that was my wheelhouse. Because of MTV, I'm wearing a Dio shirt, but yet I'm enjoying Pale Shelter video on MTV. <laughs> I'm enjoying the video for change. The guys don't look like anyone in Iron Maiden, but there was just something about it that really grabbed me. So I had this like duality about me when I was coming of age musically. You know what I mean? Yeah, I had the the exact flip flop of that. Whereas, you know, I, I, I'm 49 now. And, you know, so I was 10 years old. Uh, it was MTV was 83 or 81 when it did 81. 81. Okay. So I was eight yeah. years old when MTV debuted. And so it really did kind of raise me. I mean, those sort of pivotal, you know, eight years old through 15, those, you know, real pre-adolescent and adolescent years. And so, so much of my life is tied up in MTV and videos and things like that. And it was only as I started to get older, that's when I became, got into metal and I got into hair metal and I was listening to Dokken and, and, and all that stuff. But all of my really early memories are just whatever was playing on MTV, you know? And so even though I, I, I will admit though, I, I don't think I fully knew tears. I knew those songs. I knew mad world, but it was really not until songs to the big from the big chair that I identified, Oh, this is that band tears for fears. They were just kind of songs in the ether. You know, it's so weird because that was such a massive record for MTV. The videos for everybody wants to rule the world shout, um, head over heels. I mean, they just played all the fucking time. Yeah. And that experience doesn't that it doesn't exist for kids anymore. You know, we no. all it's it's amazing. Like we you were talking about being raised by MTV. Our mom worked. So my brothers and I left the television on like the radio all day long. All, all day. All day. All day. Absolutely. And and if if a, they were playing a video that we didn't care about, we'd go about our business. If we heard something in the background, we'd run back into the living room to watch the video. And I mean, it was our babysitter and my, my, uh, my first career aspiration was for sure to be an MTV VJ. <laughs> oh my, of course. 100%. And then you talk to Dave Holmes for a while and you're dissuaded to that notion. <laughs> who's who, who is a, who is a friend of mine in he's real a great life. Friend of mine. Yeah. He's a great dude. And, uh, in uh, his stories, uh, God, I had him on this podcast just to talk about his stories at, uh, Woodstock 99, Oh uh, yeah. You know. yeah. And, and I joke, actually, honestly, when he talks about it, it makes me still wish I was a, D, a, a, a VJ. Like I'm oh, not, yeah. it, I, my, those, those desires still exist. Well, cause we, I think we could have done it right. Right. 
Oh, 100%. Well, but you read, uh, have you ever read I Want My MTV? No. Who, oh, is that it's Jesse fantastic. Camp, who is it? Uh, it's, um, who wrote, it's, um, Rob Tannenbaum and, uh, Craig Marks, I believe are the authors. And it's just an oral history of the first five years or six years of MTV. And just, and when you read about just like how bare bones, the, the VJ, like, like how little they were paid and, you know, they were basically just interns essentially. And just how ramshackle it all was. It was like the production values were, somewhat lower than your friend's YouTube series. And, you know, but <laughs> if you were our age at that time, th- they were as big as Michael Jackson. Like Adam Hunter was as popular as Michael Jackson in my mind. I, I honestly, my, my feelings for Nina Blackwood and Martha Quinn, was like, God, Nina would be really fun, but Martha would be like, we'd be together forever. But Nina that would classic be really Madonna horror thing. <laughs> <laughs> no, right. It's well, it's ginger. It's 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 ginger and Marianne. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. It's it's completely that. I did audition to be a host. Oh, um, a, f- a friend of mine was an executive, and she was at the time dating like one of the head honchos. And the head honcho got me a meeting with the woman who would like literally decide if I was going to be a VJ. Cut to me in in they, their offices for some reason were in the big building at Universal. Uh, which is now like the Comcast executive building. They weren't in Santa Monica at the time for whatever reason. And I blew my meeting, sat down, started talking to this lady. It was really nice. Told her all about my history, you know, my love of music, blah, blah, blah. And at some point she was like, wait, how did you get this audition again? And I was like, oh, my friend dates so-and-so. Oh, yeah. And I just watched all the blood rush out of her face (laughs) because my friend had stolen um, her boyfriend. Yeah. (laughs) Well, you want to know you want to know how to what degree videos ruled my childhood. In 2001, I went on a VH1 game show called Name That Video and I won a car. Get the okay. Get the fuck out. Yeah. Who who was the host of uh, Name That Video? Karen Bryant, uh, who was very, is a, even if you don't know the name, you absolutely would recognize her because she was all over MTV and VH1 in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, or I'm sorry, more 90s rather. Um, And she was the host. And uh, yeah, I I went on this game show and I won a Toyota 4Runner and it was uh, very exciting. I actually, (laughs) I won't bore, it's too long of a story to get into, but go ahead. Sorry. No, how long did you have the Forerunner for? Oh, I didn't even have a driver's license. I, I sold it right <laughs> back to Toyota. I, I lived, I've been, lived in New York City. I didn't have a license, and so yeah, I just I went to Jersey City on the on the path and cashed. They gave me a check, and I walked, and it saved my ass. Saved my ass because I was like twenty five grand in debt at the time to Mastercard, and so it paid off all my debt, and wow. uh, and it got me into an apartment in Astoria. And then oh. <laughs> the rest is extremely boring history. Do you remember any of the videos that you were able to name? I remember every single on the- one of them. <laughs> I mean, I, well, not only that, and and I'll try to make this as truncated as 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 possible because I do want to talk more about Tears of Fears. But um, it's one of those. It was one of those deals where there's three contestants in the first round, and then one person gets knocked off, and then the second round, and it's like a bunch of categories, sort of you know where you whatever different like jeopardy style categories and then in round two it would be like they'd give you a clue to some song and then you would be like christian i can name that song i can name that video in four seconds and be like well brendan i can name that song in two seconds (laughs) and then it would kind of like a game of chicken and then uh so i won that round and then i got to the end and at this point the game show had been on the air for a few months but nobody had won yet and that's a problem like people need to win game shows and so they were, there was kind of like a buzz around the studio, like, oh my God, we think this guy's going to do it. We think he's going to do it. And so the final round is me and they show 10 videos and you have to name song and artist. You have 60 seconds. And if you get one wrong, you can come back to it. You know, like, it's not like if you get one wrong, you're screwed. You just pass and you come back to it later. So I get through it. And with like one second left, I, I win and everybody's ecstatic. 
and people are cheering and blah, blah, blah. And I'm out of my gourd. And they say, go in this room and just, uh, we're going to have to have you fill out some paperwork, just hang out in the green room for a little while. So I go in there and I call my dad and I'm all excited or whatever. And, and then after about an, like 45 minutes, I'm like, nobody's come in yet. Like, what's the deal? And then the producers walk in and they all have like sour pusses on. And I was like, what's the problem? And apparently what had happened is I had said two of the songs slightly incorrectly. Uh, They had played You Shook Me All Night Long by ACDC. And I said, you shook me. And they played Crash Into Me by Dave Matthews Band. And I said Crash, which was the name of the album, not the name of the song. Now, if they had said wrong, I would have gotten them right. Like, I, you know, I would have guessed them immediately. So it was kind of their screw up. And they said, well, we can't air this now because game shows have to be legit or else there's like legal reasons. And so they said, so here's what we would like you to do. We'd like you to come back tomorrow and put on the same clothing and we'll have you do the final round again with 10 different songs and artists. And so I spent like that next 36 hours just pooping my pants (laughs) laying on my (laughs) shitty futon mattress on the floor. And I lived in an apartment at the time with literal rats, like rats that would, you'd hear chewing the plaster and they'd run out into the, in the living room at night. So if you open the door at night, you had to like flick the lights on to make sure the rats would go away. (laughs) And so I was convinced I was going to get fucked. I, you know, was utterly convinced. And, but I went back the next day and I do think they wanted me to win because it would have been a really awkward situation if I had lost. So I do feel like the second day's videos were a little easier. Um, but I was able, <laughs> I put on the same clothing. I put on my same puka shell necklace and my hoop earring. And, uh, and I went back and I was able to, to pull it out. What a triumph, sir. It is, it's <laughs> not, I probably am not exaggerating to say it was the biggest triumph of my life. Songs from the Big Chair is the second studio album by Cheers for Fears. It was released on February 25th, 1985. The album peaked at number two in the UK and number one in the US, becoming a multi-platinum seller and the band's most successful album to date. Songs from the Big Chair spawned the commercially successful hits Mother's Talk, Shout, Everybody Wants to Rule the World, Head Over Heels, and I Believe. Originally, the album was to be titled The Working Hour, but Roland fought to change it to songs from the big chair, which was derived from the 1976 TV film Sybil about a woman with a multiple personality disorder who only feels safe when she is sitting in her analyst's big chair. The title of the album reflects the band's view of being targeted by a hostile English music press at the time. I'll give you quickly my two game show VH1 game show things. First of all, I was a contestant on the dating game back oh in 1998, gosh. which was the worst day of my life because I was literally stuck in a room with two personal trainers the entire day. I did not win. I did not win. I thought I was. So I sorry. thought I could win by being funny, but they don't let you be funny. You you know you tell a joke, you get a laugh from the crowd, and then two r- producers rush in and then give you something else to say. It was a horrible day, but yeah. I booked in the uh, many many lifetimes ago i was talent i was repped at gersh and they got me an audition for a show on vh1 i don't know what it was eventually called but it was it was based on a british show where two comedians would go to celebrity homes dressed as policemen and rate their cd collection so i booked that show with barry sobel Mm -hmm. you earlier mentioned the fact that mtv paid nothing VH1 paid less than MTV, even though they were the same company. And (laughs) Gersh made me pass on the show because it was like literally like $80 a week or something like that. It was was comically low. But they're like, but you're going to be famous. You're going to get to be on VH1. Uh, And I went through like a whole round of auditioning with Barry. Like we had chemistry and and it was Mm -hmm. a whole thing. So the same producers one of which be, went on to become one of the women who is the magical elves, uh, you know, of Bravo fame. They brought me on to audition for rock and roll jeopardy. And the finals were me, Henry Rollins and a guy named Jeff Probst. Jeff Probst was the one who booked that gig, but we did the full show 
on the set of Jeopardy. And I got to talk to Alex Trebek before I went on to do my full show. And he said to me, keep it simple. Keep it economical. People don't want to hear you talk. My problem was I just wanted to talk. (laughs) (laughs) I just wanted to be like, hey, quick, quick tangent, everybody. The new record from Iron Maiden is actually really fucking amazing. So I think you should all go out and buy that, please. Blah, blah, blah. So. Yeah, no, that that is something as I've as I sort of spent a little time doing host stuff and presentation, you know, uh, award show presentation type stuff or whatever. It I, I acquired a real I wouldn't know if I call it admiration, but you look at somebody like Ryan Seacrest and you're like, you know what? That dude's a pro. He's a pro. Like it's you know, you can call him corny. You can call him cheesy all at once. But he understands that people that you just stand there and read the damn lines in the prompter. Don't. <laughs> Try to put your own little spin on it. Don't try. But to be unflappable and to just do the job is a skill in and of itself. Because I mean, I, I was I think I was kind of like you where I would always think like, come on, Finnegan, come up with something interesting and funny. It's like, no, it's it's a live hit. Just just do it. Just say it, please. You know, and right, so, yeah, exactly. I mean, I have a real admiration for people who can just do the job. And I couldn't. And yeah. that's why I failed. And that's why I never went on to book anything else after that. And then Gersh kicked me to the curb as they do. Uh, you, you know, you get two, you get two pilots and I didn't even necessarily want to host a, a, like a game show. But the next thing I know, I find myself auditioning for all this kind of stuff. I definitely am sure that I did the shtick of where like, okay, next question. Someone said like, I'll take uh, Ethiopian history for 200. Oh no, this was music. It was all music. So I'll take history of the Rolling Stones for 200. And I'm, I'm sure that I would have done the shtick where I was like, Oh my God, this is too fucking easy. Let's move on. Give me another question. <laughs> like the answer was satisfaction. Come on, come on team back there. I'm, I'm sure that I did that bad. Shit. I probably would have done something stupid like, Oh, let's start you up or something. You know, I would have been, you know, uh, what is this? A beggar's banquet? <laughs> something really lame like that. Yeah. I, I, wa- I did watch Henry Rollins uh, do his uh, run through. Uh, Which is very hilarious good. to me. I mean, that, <laughs> you know, good for Henry Rollins. But I, I actually, in in college, I took a, a nonfiction writing class with, uh, and my teacher was Robert Christgau, the, the famous rock critic from The Village Voice. Oh, shit. Yeah. And I, like an idiot, I wrote a long nonfiction piece about how much I hated Henry Rollins. And, but of course, which would have been fine if I knew anything about like punk history and black, like I, cause that stuff was a real, that I had a real blind spot when it came to that. And, you know, I knew nothing about black flag other than they existed and things like that. And so I just, it was really ill-informed and he kind of took me to the woodshed over it. But my main argument, which I still do believe is that when you accept the gig, you forfeit the right to be above the gig. And <gasps> the 90s were full of Henry Rollins, like guest hosting 120 minutes and like mocking the bands that he was introducing, like trying to maintain cred while also being a TV star, which I, I found that s- somewhat distasteful. What's well, like, you um, know, uh, who, no, what, why am I even here? I don't This is stupid. <laughs> well, you're here because your, your agent sent you into audition for it and negotiated a deal for you to host the show. So you're not fooling anybody. Uh, m- maybe back then having tattoos made you seem automatically interesting, but, uh, not really. <laughs> <laughs> well, he was ro- rocking the, I remember his hair even then was the salt and pepper, the short, the buzz mm-hmm. cut. He had cut his hair of the, you know, cause I, I liked the Rollins band, you know, cause by the time I got to college, I had switched my allegiance to, you know, replacements, Husker Du, Sonic Youth from, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the cheese me- or not cheese metal from the metal of my childhood. But, um, yeah, who knows what the world would have been like had, uh, Henry gone on to uh, host um, Survivor. Could have been a more interesting show. <laughs> oh, I'm sure you would have just mocking, like mocking the people who couldn't complete the challenges and like, <laughs> you're weak, you're mentally weak. <laughs> have you ever seen Henry Rollins do his spoken word stand-up show? Not live. Uh, and that was another thing, too, is that, you know, when he would be calling his stuff spoken word. And then I would watch, I could see, you'd see some of it every once in a while. I'd be like, dude, you're talking about airplane food. Like, it's stand-up. <laughs> Just just because you have tattoos and and you have a black t-shirt on or whatever, it's like 
if it walks like stand up and talks like stand up, it's stand up. So could you imagine him getting up at Largo between Brian Pesain and Karen Kilgariff and Paul Tompkins? You know? Well, I, I actually enjoy more the idea of him showing up at the Dayton Funny Bone. Uh, <laughs> How is the Dayton Funny Bone? Is that still rocking? I have not been there in probably six or seven years, but uh, I suppose it is probably as rocking as it ever has been. I don't know why. I feel bad for Dayton because that's always my go-to kind of like shitty comedy reference, which is I feel right. bad because I've had lovely times there. Uh, but um, but there was a time where I was I had a rental car, and this was before the days of Google, uh, you know, of, of having uh, Google Maps or anything on your phone. And so I had like MapQuest directions. And I was driving through uh, like a really shitty area of Dayton because I was thinking I was going from a college gig to Dayton or something like that. And uh, I pulled over and like just like an empty parking lot just to look at these directions. And this woman who was missing a few teeth kind of came up to my came up to my window and like knocked on the window. And I said, uh, I said, can I help you? And she said, can I help you? And I said, no, I think I'm okay. And then I rolled up the window and turned on the ignition. And her friend from like 50 feet away yelled, you scared him. Uh, So I don't know if she was offering me uh, drugs or a blowjob or something, but uh, I guess we'll never know. The Seeds of Love is the third studio album from Tears for Fears. It was released on September 25th, 1989. It retained the band's epic sound while incorporating influences ranging from jazz and soul to the Beatles. The album includes the title hit single, Sowing the Seeds of Love, as well as Woman in Chains and Advice for the Young at Heart, both of which reached the top 40 in several countries. The Seeds of Love was an international success, entering the UK albums chart at number one in top 10 in other countries around the world, including the US. Despite its success, personal tensions during recording led to band members Kurt Smith and Roland Oswald splitting up at the conclusion of the Seeds of Love world tour. Orzabal carried on and released two more albums under the Tears for Fears flag, 1993's Elemental, which included the hit Break It Down Again, and 1995's Raul and the Kings of Spain. Thank God, Orzabal and Smith patched things up and reunited in the early 2000s, releasing their sixth studio record, Everybody Loves a Happy Ending, 2004. Though the band continued to tour regularly, it took them nearly 18 years to release their latest record, which Christian referenced early on in the show, The Tipping Point, and that was released this past February. They're just simple notes from Wikipedia on Tears for Fears. Who else were you listening to uh, when you sort of, you know, discovered this sort of type of uh, eclectic British music? You know, I'm not sure. I mean, like I said, I, I, you know, stuff like Head Over, you know, all the songs in the big chair, that was kind of just part of childhood. You know, it was sort of the architecture of just growing up in the 80s. It was really only when uh, Seeds of Love came out that I felt like a person like, oh, my God, I think I actually really like this specific band, Tears for Fears. And it, which is funny because that's where a lot of people jump ship, you know, or a lot of people are just like, what is this, this Beatles thing that they're doing? And I wasn't even really a knowledgeable Beatles fan at the time. I mean, I was 17 um, or, or so, um, but I just, I loved it. I loved, I was already starting to get into a lot of power pop and things like that. And so I, I liked big kitchen sink arrangements and orchestral pop and things like that. Um, but yeah, Sowing Seeds of Love, I, I really loved. And then Woman in Chains kind of became my favorite song for a long time. I, I still, I in anticipation, which something I do is I, I will make a list of my top songs by any given artist. I have a real process of, uh, but I had, I came up with 35 that I could really stand behind as being Tears of Fear songs that I liked. But uh, one would be head, head Over Heels, but two would be Women Woman in Chains. Not only do I just think it's a beautiful song, I think it's just an immaculate production. I think uh, I've always been a sucker for fretless bass. 
is uh, <laughs> even though it's poorly used most of the time, I think sometimes it's used in really corny songs. But I love Fretless Bass, and uh, Phil Collins plays drums on it, and it's it sounds uh, his drum drumming on it is fantastic, and uh, it's just kind of that big epic song, and it, and it has the uh, the smoothest modulation of any song that I can think of. You know, where a song in the final in the in the third act of a song it'll bump up a key and that's supposed to sort of raise the energy level usually it's like a really corny or it's very obvious when it happens like oh okay this is the big emotional thing whereas in woman in chains it happens in a really subtle nuanced way i think um coming out of the the middle eight and then it kind of goes into the, the coda you know so free here so free here but i i just think it it's just a very affecting song it's a beautiful production and a beautiful song. And uh, yeah, and then I kind of was on board from from then forward. I'm babbled a lot there. No, no, I love it. Well, I, like I said, that was one of the highlights of the show at the Forum, Woman in Chains. And they have a young woman. I'll say this to everybody else listening to the podcast. They have a young woman who tours with them and does background vocals. Her name is Karina Round. Um, she's an artist in her own right. And they really gave her the space to just fucking crush it. And she did. And the yeah. place went crazy. You know, I, I yeah. have still not seen them live, which is they're coming here in a few weeks, but they're coming to like Jones Beach, which is a real pain in the ass to get to. And it's on a night where my wife works. And so I don't know that I'm going to be able to get there. But um, I heard them playing at the beginning of the tour. They were doing one of those serious XM live concerts and I was listening to it. And one of the things that that really impressed me is that they're playing all of their songs in their intended key, which is rare for a band that's been around for a long time where the singers are, you know, because your voice, it usually can't hit those notes when you get to a certain age. But all of their songs are, are you know, as in the same key that you would hear them on the albums. And uh, so, yeah, I imagine they sound a great live. Yeah, they um, they have not lost a step. Um, I do a radio show on Sirius XM on uh, Volume, which is sort of the rock talk yeah. channel um it's uh rock tales with ahmed zappa um, oh of course uh, yes i knew that uh, ahmed is um batman and i'm robin and we we could not get into that little serious show because they did shoot that here in la oh. and they have like a funky studio near la brea and santa monica um also our buddy richard sheltinga who's on the show he briefly managed them um when they got back together back in the day for like two seconds and he went to the show with me and he basically said, I, I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. They would stand the test of time. I knew it back then. Mm. I fought with the people that own the company. Um, I knew that they would, they would not lose a step. And he was really blown away by the fact that they did exactly what you said by playing in key, playing the songs as they were meant to be performed and singing them as they did so many years ago. Cause few people can do that anymore. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's nothing. I mean, I understand why it happens. I mean, I'm I'm certainly as I've gotten older, like I can't sing the same karaoke songs that maybe I used to or whatever. Yeah. But but there's just something so deflating when you go see like a U2 or something like that. And the song you love is just five steps lower than you're used to hearing it. Even if wow. you don't know anything about music, you hear it and it just doesn't feel right. Uh, going to see Van Halen the last couple tours with Diamond Dave, <laughs> even though he was my childhood hero. Uh, it's an exercise, and how bad is he going to fuck this song up? You know, oh my my, we we saw them, we saw them. Uh, I guess maybe the second to last tour. I, I don't remember exactly what it was, but uh, we saw them at Bethel Woods in in upstate New York. And my wife is obsessed with David Lee Roth. Like we have a, a, a very intricate pencil drawing of David Lee Roth on the wall <laughs> of her business. My wife owns a performance venue called QED Astoria. And she has a, a, a really intricate drawing of David Lee Roth. That's like the patron saint of QED. But um, but yeah, I mean, that last concert, there were some, uh, I mean, I give him credit for, for throwing his voice out there, but it was kind of like throwing a Frisbee and maybe the dog will catch it and maybe it won't. <laughs> or as he would say, it's kind of like throwing a frisbee. Maybe the dog will check it. Maybe it won't. Uh, we saw him at the Hollywood Bowl was like, you know, the second to last show ever now. And I remember he he sang I'll Wait perfectly, you know, after botching the previous four songs. And I just remember turning to my friend and being like, oh, he did good. Little Dave did yeah, good. Okay, you did good, David. <laughs> um, what else is going on in your life these days? Well, I'm. Um, it's 
the thing that I, I've kind of had the most fun doing recently is I, I this is just a silly thing for me is I've actually been writing a, a music newsletter for the past few months uh, called uh, New Music for Olds, uh, which is one of the things that a lot of my friends who are, you know, real music heads or they were in their 20s, they now have lives and jobs and families and all that. And they don't really have the time to plow through the new release section and find new stuff. And and that's pretty much all I do in my free time. And so I started writing this newsletter a few months ago, um, and it's every two weeks, although if you're a paid subscriber, you get it every week. But uh, it's just it's three songs every two weeks, stuff I like, and then just some some jokes and like like I'm writing uh, I'm writing one for for next week and I'm gonna have a long section about the psychology of, of making music lists and why dudes do it and what the methodology is of, of making a proper <laughs> music list. And so it's just, it's goofy, dumb dude stuff for the most part, but uh, I'm just having a blast doing it. So it's, yeah, it's new music for olds. Uh, new music for olds. Yes. 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 Fucking phenomenal. And so you are turning people on to stuff that they wouldn't find. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, and I'm trying, and I'm trying to write it for, for again, some people who may used to have been music people, but then kind of drift away, but also people who just kind of like, it's just never been a part of their, or it's not a part of their lives. Like, like they, you know, of course they absorbed music. Everybody loves music, but I don't think people, there's so many bad things about the way music is consumed now, you know, in terms of musicians not getting paid and, and the ephemeral nature of you know, MP3s and streaming and whatever. But one of the upsides is, is that it's just browsing has never been easier and just finding interesting stuff. It, there's so much out there. And I just have always found that my life is a little better when I have a new song that I'm into, even if it's not brand new, just something new to me. And so I just try to give people that buzz or at least inspire them, you know, to sort of give your life that new car smell for a few days when you have a new <laughs> album that you're loving, you know? On that note, if you wouldn't mind, is there a song or two currently that you think is hitting all those uh, buttons? Hmm. Um, there's a song that I was going to include for next week. Uh, this band called Clothesline from Hell, uh, which I a week ago I'd never heard of, but uh, and they only have they have one album out, but then a new single that's I assume is going to be on their next album. Uh, this band, what's it? Is it called Open Up? I now, of course, I can't remember. Open up, yeah. It's, the song is called "Open Up" by Clothesline from Hell. It's um, I don't know how to how to describe it, but uh, if uh, if you're on the he- if you like the heavier end of things, uh, there's this band called uh, Trip Villain, which I'm super into. That's like on the definitely the heavier end of the spectrum. Uh, terrible band name, great band. If you're into sort of more like dance electronica kind of stuff, there's a band called a uh, Abibio uh, Sound Machine. They're a British band. They've got kind of like a neo soul meets grace jones kind of vibe uh that's i yeah i i I, there's a lot i mean i'm i'm more i've always sort of sought out new music but since i started doing this newsletter now i'm just kind of um you know immersed in it all the time which is a nice way to a nice way to live honestly dude that's so fucking cool because i've sort of gone the other way in that i exhausted myself by the time i hit 30 because i had to be that guy starting in college it was really starting in high school but definitely college and then early adulthood like i had to be the guy that knew like there's this band nirvana you guys are gonna be yeah. fucking knocked out by them like i had to be and i was exhausted from that pursuit by the time i hit you know 30 early 30s so i basically just sort of took my foot off the pedal and went backwards and just started listening to 60s and 70s yeah. and like all the bands well in the, the algorithm never- makes it so easy to fall into that k-hole now oh yeah. you know you you can you can just sort of let the algorithm uh entertain you and that'll just kind of re-churn the stuff that you already listened to which is great but it doesn't take much like i i will just of course i'll follow some various music blogs and rock writers and stuff but a lot of the stuff that i really enjoy it's literally i just go through the apple music new release section see an album cover that looks interesting click play and see if i like it and it's so easy to do that. And so a lot of it is just kind of making making that feel less like a waste of time and more like a productive use of time. <laughs> well, talk about productive use of time. I have a playlist on Spotify that is 596 songs long now. It is my classic new wave post-punk and <laughs> punk playlist. 
So it's everything from the damned to Nirvana and everything in between. But um, yes, making lists, listening to music. That's so fucking cool. Um, dude, we've run out of time. Well, it, time flies <laughs> when you're having fun. Uh, I hope so. To, to think that I did not give any of my nuanced feelings on uh, Raul and the Kings of Spain. but uh, I'll, I'll uh, give 30 seconds. Go. <laughs> three good songs. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, my friend said to me the other night, he's like, you know, when Kurt walked away, he didn't think that Roland would would be able to continue on. And Roland made two good records. And mm-hmm. Kurt kind of saw the writing on the wall, like, eh, we got to get over our shit and get back together. But he said, uh, he said, they're like brothers. When you're around them in person, they are like brothers. Doesn't mean that they're you always can tell, in love with you each other. You can tell that they, that they, that they, they love slash hate each other, but that they completely have a language between the two of them for sure. Well, they were definitely having fun on stage when uh, I went to the forum the other night. Um, there were a They've lot gotten to of a good smiles. place, clearly. <laughs> They're yeah. in a great place. And I think that they are genuinely uh, celebrating the fact that they've put out a great record and they've got a great tour going on. Dude, you're the absolute fucking best for coming on the show. Is there anything else you want to promote as you walk out the door? Uh, my latest special, uh, Show Your Work, uh, is streaming on Amazon Prime, and I have uh, five albums on iTunes and all that. And if you're ever in the New York area, uh, my wife owns a great performance venue, mostly comedy, but also storytelling and improv and stuff called QED. That's QEDAstoria.com. Dude, fucking A, thank you so much for well, being here Oh, thank you today. for having me. Absolutely. And to the rest of you, thank you so much for liking, listening, subscribing, telling your friends. So many great guests coming down the pike, but come on. Who fucking brought the thunder today? Goddamn Christian Finnegan. And of course, the Brandocast is produced by Mr. Richard Sheltinga. So until the next time, cats and kittens.